I made bad choices because I was living away from God. But uh, I see now, looking back, I see God's hand in my life. Even when I didn't know He was pursuing me, He was chasing me down. And I eventually surrendered to Him, and just an absolute amazing thing. Welcome to this week's edition of First Person. I'm Wayne Shepherd, and my guest today is Rick McClary. We'll hear his story in just a few moments. Every week on First Person, we meet people who, although they have divergent personalities and different circumstances in life, they all have found meaning and purpose through placing their faith in Jesus Christ and turning their lives over to His kingdom purposes. If you're not familiar with First Person, we have a website that will give you additional information at firstpersoninterview.com. You can read more about each week's guest. You can listen to the interviews at any time and check the schedule of upcoming guests. It's all found at firstpersoninterview.com. And then to leave a comment, we have a Facebook page for that purpose. Click on like at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. Our guest today is a Christian radio colleague who is the general manager of the Light Radio Network based in Vermont. Rick's story is something I've been anxious to share with you, and one reason is I think it gives hope to parents of prodigals as they pray for their children. Rick joined me on the phone, and of course, we began talking a little radio. We are in New England, and uh, specifically in the state of Vermont, uh, and it's a, um, a ministry that is a non-commercial. Being in Vermont has very interesting uh, history of how we uh, function and how we work. Uh, it goes back to over 25 years, but uh, I've been here now for 12 years managing the Light Radio Network. It's a group of radio stations, 10 of which are on the light, and then we have three uh, different signals that broadcast a a contemporary hit-type radio. Mm -hmm. And you're on the air every day, right, Rick? I am, yeah. I come in and do the morning show, and I, I didn't do that the whole time I was here. I just started doing that recently. It just was something that worked out best for us, for me to come in and do that. And I have a background of, uh, before I came to New England, uh, I had been, uh, I guess, air talent uh, for a number of different uh, stations around the country. And uh, so I have a background in that in programming and operations and uh, came here 12 years ago uh, to be the general manager uh, and not be an air talent. But it just worked out in the last couple of years for me to kind of swing and do both. So I'm managing the group of stations in addition to being on the air every day. so Yeah, I know. Once it's in the blood, it, it's hard to, to get it out. Uh, you and I are similar in that regard. I, I served in management for many years, and also on the radio at the same time. And there's something about radio. You know, we won't go into all that here and now, but, uh, you know, God has raised up these ministries around the country, various stations and programs, and it, it is a pleasure to serve Christ this way, isn't it? Oh, it's a, it's a tremendous pleasure. And people hear statistically, they hear about New England being... Uh, probably the least churched place in the country. Uh, it does score. The six uh, New England states score in the top ten as far as, uh, you know, those surveys that were done about uh, do people find God relevant or do they read their Bible on a weekly or even monthly basis. And our area scores, I guess depending on you're looking at it, we score number one for being the least interested in reading Bible and things like that. Mm-hmm. So. We are definitely in a mission field here. Well, we hear those statistics about New England, but at the same time, you have an audience that's engaged with you, and, you know, they want to follow Christ, and they get inspiration from what you do. So, I mean, talk to me about the audience that you do have. As you know, Christian uh, people who listen to Christian radio, uh, they spend more time uh, 
listening and spending time with us than maybe others who listen to other different formats. Uh, we have a lot of faithful listeners. Uh, I think our, our major goal here, of course, is to uh, engage with the listeners in what we do on the air. Uh, we have, I guess, for lack of a better word, we're kind of a hybrid radio station where we do play music, uh, a contemporary uh, praise uh, style, and we also have spoken word programs on and uh, talk shows. Uh, we carry a lot of uh, different programs from various ministries, uh, Moody and others, and uh, we get feedback from our listeners. They tell us they like something or tell us, uh, you made a change. <laughs> Well, Rick, I wanted to talk to you today. Uh, I mean, you and I could talk about radio forever, but I wanted to talk to you about your own personal testimony. Uh, I heard it just briefly spoken. It was enough to whet my appetite to want to bring it to the attention of my listeners. So let's talk about your life, and you can start wherever you want in telling me your story. Sure. Well, like a lot of uh, people today, I I came from a a family that had uh, broken up, and my mom and dad were divorced when I was uh, around... 10, and uh, the family deteriorated even greater after that. My mom wasn't really capable of being a single mom for five kids. It just, uh, without a father around and without a real strong church connection, that kind of ended when my uh, folks were divorced. My mom didn't have a car. She couldn't get to church easily, and I, it, it appeared that maybe she didn't see a, a real strong or a real importance on us being in church, we just cycled downward with uh, getting involved in things. So by the time I became a teenager, I had uh, started to make some pretty bad choices in my life. Wound up uh, quitting school when I was 16, in the middle of my junior year of high school. Just told the school, see you later, I'm too smart to be here. Now this is back in what, the 60s? In, in uh, 1968, yep, 69, mm-hmm. right in that area. Uh, left home and hitchhiked around the country a little bit uh, with some other friends and went to the West Coast, uh, lived in a, again, for lack of a better word, a, a, a very unorganized kind of a communal situation. Well, I bring up the, the time frame because uh, we all know what was going on in the late 60s. So you were, you were one of those... Uh, people caught up in that and kind of wandering around and searching for something, right? Oh, it's definitely uh, searching. I, I think I had it figured out. I mean, you know, we we just felt like the government was wrong and going the wrong direction. It was the war. It was pretty strong, uh, the Vietnam War, and, uh, you know, many of the young people. And I wasn't a college age. I wasn't involved in some of the organized stuff that uh, some of the famous hippies of the day I wasn't involved in any of that because I was pretty young. You know, we'd wind up going to the park and taking part in some of the the peace rallies, if you will, and and things like that. Music was a big deal for me. I mean, Mm -hmm. I was really into the rock and roll scene with, you know, the groups that you could imagine, Cream and Led Zeppelin, etc. I think anybody who was a teenager in the 60s was into that. I mean, it it was the language of the culture, wasn't it? It was. And, uh, I mean, that started for me with the British invasion. I mean, I just got real excited about all of that when I was uh, 13. And so not being in school, not having any direction, just and doing things, making choices, living in this kind of a crash pad slash commune 
style of living was very interesting looking back. And yet, and yet, God was pursuing me. An interesting story from this whole thing, one evening, and, and I, I, I want to be careful because it's certainly not to embellish the bad choices I made, but in spite of some of those, God was still, you, I, I knew he was pursuing me. And one evening we had gotten high, some friends, and we went to a seance, which was just a couple doors down in this big old abandoned mansion in Tacoma, Washington, where I was living. And this lady was conducting this seance, and as I sat there in my bell-bottom blue jeans and uh, T-shirt, kind of listening to this and seeing what was happening, something definitely was taking place. There was some spiritual activity, Mm. very occultic things happening. And I got scared, and I sat there and started, and it's interesting because the only prayer I knew was the Lord's Prayer. Hmm. And I started, I put my head down, and I started praying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And when I got to the part where it said, deliver us from evil, it was like a broken record. Uh, Deliver us from evil, deliver us from evil, deliver us from evil. I just kept saying that. And I knew that prayer because my dad, before the divorce, used to come down and tuck the boys in before bed and would that the prayer that he would pray over us or for us he'd pray the lord's prayer and i knew it that was the only scripture i knew by heart and it was because of what my my parents did or my dad did and um i said that at, 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 during that time and the the seance ended and i left and i felt so uncomfortable and yet nothing changed in my life mm-hmm. and uh i could i was caught up in that whole drug scene uh and enjoyed, I guess I enjoyed what I was doing every day. Another incident where I had gotten, a, I guess, for lack of a better word, overdose of a particular drug. Uh, and I was on the couch laying in this place, and I couldn't get off the couch. And I, my friends carried me upstairs and, and put me into bed. And I remember making a deal with God. Uh, I don't want to die. Uh, please, uh, you know, save me, and uh, uh, I'll give my life to you. It's interesting that at those moments you had thoughts of God and always turned in that direction. As as low as things got for you, you you turned in that direction anyway. Yeah, and I and I I take it back to the seeds that were planted in my heart. Even though my parents were quite dysfunctional, and uh, the family was not in a in a good place, uh, God still used some of the instruction and some of the things that they had planted in my heart, because I did. I, and, and I go b- back to say that, that that was God pursuing me and showing me even then that he, he was uh, uh, you know, chasing after me. So uh, I woke up the next morning and realized I was alive, and I did not uh, continue with the deal I made with God. What happens next? We'll find out as we continue this conversation with Rick McClary today on First Person. During World War II, after completing a mission which helped in ending the war, the USS Indianapolis was sunk by a Japanese submarine with nearly 1,200 lives lost. Just over 300 men survived, and only a handful are still with us today. Next time on First Person, you'll meet one of them. Edgar Harrell, who survived days in shark-infested waters, will tell his story. Don't miss our Memorial Day weekend edition of First Person. 
My friend and guest today on the program is Rick McClary, who is general manager of the Light Network, a group of stations, Christian radio stations in New England. And we're hearing Rick's personal testimony in the program today. So you're a teenager. You're, uh, you're moving around the country. Uh, drugs are a part of your life, Rick. And yet, at moments of crisis, you seem to turn back to God. There was a seed planted there as a child that you kept coming back to. Pick up the story there for me. Yeah, so after I had that incident where I uh, was, I, whatever the drug they had given me, and I found out later it was THC, or not THC, it was uh, whatever, some kind of an animal tranquilizer. Mm that was mixed in with whatever I had taken, and uh, I, I think God, <laughs> I, I mean, he saved me from dying. I could have died, I'm sure, uh, but he had different plans for me, and I uh, woke up the next day, and I just continued the lifestyle I was living, And but it wasn't long after that that I was with my friends walking down the street, and uh, a police car came behind us, and they were slowly driving, and <laughs> we took the, the, the baggies out of our pocket and threw them into some bushes. And um, the police pulled over and, and arrested us. I was a 17-year-old kid. I, my mom lived in North Dakota. And because I was underage, they took me to the jail, which was a terrible experience. Mm. Uh, in the late 60s, all the, uh, the people that were in the the, the jail in Tacoma, Washington. Uh, you know, I could hear men in the background screaming. Uh, I don't know what was going on, overdosing. I don't know what. Mm-hmm. I just remember as a 17-year-old kid, again, it was like, yeah. uh, this is not good. <laughs> they called my mother. She wired money for me to get on the train the next day. And the detective the next morning, they served me breakfast, and they took me to the train, and he put me on the train, and he looked at me and said, do not get off this train until you get home. And I said, yes, sir. And I, it was a 24-hour train ride from Washington State back to Grand Forks, North Dakota. And during that time, I began to think about my life and realize that I'm, I'm tired. And my life is just kind of wasting. I'm useless. And that same time, my mom had decided to move out to California. And because I hadn't been living with her and because I had been, I'd left home, uh, I asked her if I could go along, and she said yes. And so I moved out to California with her, decided not to go back to school. I should have gone back to high school, but I decided not to. And in California is when I realized I'm turning 18 at the end of the year. I'm going to have to sign up for selective service. I'm going to have to make a decision in my life about Vietnam. Yeah, these were the days of the draft, I remember. Yep, and they were also... It happened to be that year they were starting the lottery. Yes. and The birthday lottery. The birthday lottery. And I didn't really understand that, so I was putting together some papers to be a conscientious objector. And I was looking for anything I could that had to do with peace, nonviolence, pacifism, all that kind of stuff. So you were doing research. Yeah. I started uh, reading the newspaper. I was out in Ventura, California. And uh, the the Manson trials were going on. That was the big news of the day. The Manson, uh, Charles Manson stuff was happening. And uh, I started reading the newspaper to follow that trial, and I saw an article, Billy Graham Answers Your Questions, something like that. 
and people could write into the newspaper with a question about different things. Yeah, that newspaper column ran for many, many years, and it still may be running for all I know, but it was very popular. And so there were always questions about the war and always questions about should Christians take up guns or should, you know, what about war and things like that. And he had quite often uh, some very good answers. So I was, I had a notebook and I was uh, verbatim copying the question and answers in this notebook to help for my research. And uh, I was watching television one day and I saw a promo for a Billy Graham crusade. And I said, I know that name. That's the guy from the newspaper. <laughs> and so I, uh, I made note of the day he was going to be on. And it just happened that evening that nobody was home. My mom and her, my younger sister had gone someplace. And so I sat down in front of the TV set with my notepad. And uh, Billy Graham came on. But beforehand, of course, I had Cliff Barrows. And they introduced Norma Zimmer and maybe George Beverly Shea. And this is the part that's very interesting. Again, God pursuing me. Think about what I'm into. I'm into Doors and Led Zeppelin, (laughs) Beatles, Dream, and all that kind of culture. Nothing that was happening at this crusade was culturally relevant to me. I guess not, no. And, And yet, but there's God pursuing me. So I sat through listening to the music that I really couldn't relate to, and... It just looked kind of real foreign to me. <laughs> and then Mr. Graham came on to speak about peace, and he talked about the Prince of Peace. And you were looking for peace in the context of, how can I uh, use this to get out of going to Vietnam? Correct. Yeah, and you know the peace symbol and all that. Oh, I mean, sure. that's what yeah. meant to me is like just this whole this peace movement that I had been involved in for a couple years, uh, that's just what I I expected he was going to talk about that. I was clueless that he was going to present a message about if you really want peace in your life, you have to know the Prince of Peace. And I tell you, Wayne, it was like the Holy Spirit was reaching out from the television set and was grabbing my heart as I sat there as a, a boy about to turn 18, that uh, I, God just spoke to me. And I wound up in front of the TV set, giving my life to Christ. And uh, weeping, I remember crying, and I remember repenting of my sins and asking God to change me, because I had seen the last couple years of my life and how it wasn't going, it wasn't going well. Something dramatically, drastically began to happen in my life. My mother decided to move back to the Midwest. I went with her again, and since it was Minnesota and I had friends back in Fargo-Moorhead, I uh, went with her, I made the move, and then I left her in Minneapolis, and I went back to Fargo-Moorhead to tell my friends about Jesus. Boy. Are you still pretty isolated in your faith at this point? Did you have anybody around you who was discipling you at all? I didn't. And that's where I had some problems. I I started telling them about my faith, and we'd go to these, we'd go to the park, or we'd go to somebody's home, and I, I had a Bible that I had gotten from uh, my mom or somebody, I, I, and I was telling my friends about Jesus, and the joints would begin to be passed, mm. 
and pretty soon I got a Bible in one hand and a joint in the other. They think you were a Jesus freak? <laughs> they, my friends thought I was over the top, <laughs> and they began to say, you know, this Rick, you're too weird for us, and they, I started to lose my friends. But I was getting stoned and feeling absolutely no joy in that. I was convicted under the heavy, heavy conviction that this was not right. And I thought, what am I going to do? And I had been asked, somebody heard me talk about um, Jesus, and this Catholic school in Fargo asked me to come and talk to a religion class. Here I'm an 18-year-old kid. Oh, and by the way, uh, after the experience in front of the TV set, I went to my conscientious objector papers, and I ripped them up. Oh, okay. And I threw them away because I thought, I don't, I don't need that anymore. That's not what this is about. And then my birthday happened on, uh, in November, and my number came up in the 200s. Yeah, you were out of danger in, in terms of being drafted. Correct. And so it was like, okay, I see God, that's interesting. But had I received a number that, was in, that would have put me in the draft status, I was at the place in my life where it says, I believe that you're in control, God. I will do what you want. I was willing to go to uh, Vietnam if that's where God called me. And I went to this Catholic school to give my story. And on the way from the Catholic school, I grabbed a cigarette to light up, and I felt this heavy conviction. And I'd heard about this place down the street about a mile that was a, like a Jesus people place where they were doing Bible studies and pe- kids from the street were going there. And that's where I went and I sat down in a chair. I walked in and I said, I need you to pray for me. And the husband and wife pastoral team that were there laid hands on me and prayed that I would be delivered from these things in my life that were still affecting me and holding me back. And I was delivered from the smoking of anything. <laughs> So, Rick, you look back on that whole experience. Does it make any sense to you at all now? I'm not exactly sure how to answer that. Uh, I, I made bad choices because I was living away from God. But uh, I see now, looking back, I see God's hand in my life. Even when I didn't know he was pursuing me, he was chasing me down. And I eventually surrendered to him. And uh, uh, it was a, just an absolute amazing thing. Well, thanks for listening to Rick McClary's story today. You know, everyone's testimony has a unique way that God chooses to reach into a life and call people into his kingdom. Hearing Rick today reminds all of us that no matter how hopeless a situation might seem to us, God is always working even when it appears otherwise. If you'd like to listen again to today's interview or share it with someone else, come to our website, firstpersoninterview.com. There in the archive, you'll find today's conversation along with all the other guests we've had on this program. Plus, when you visit firstpersoninterview.com, you'll see the schedule of what's coming up in the weeks ahead. And then we also have a Facebook page where you can leave comments and interact with other listeners. You'll find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. That's facebook.com slash firstpersoninterview. You can also subscribe to First Person as a podcast through iTunes at no cost or obligation. Next week, our guest will be a survivor of the USS Indianapolis during World War II. Now, with my thanks to my friend and producer, Joe Carlson, I'm Wayne Shepard. We'll see you next time for First Person. First Person.